Poverty is dehumanizing, not because having things or not having things actually makes you more or less human. I think, I hope (laughs) that we all get that. No, poverty is dehumanizing because of the perceptions that we tend to have of the impoverished and how the impoverished largely on the basis of those perceptions perceive themselves. But perhaps the most dehumanizing aspect of poverty is how the impoverished can become invisible to us. The church I served before coming to Blue Valley was a typical First Baptist church in a small, rural, Bible Belt town. It had a long, decades-long and respected history of uh, ministering in our community, and as a result, it was large for its setting. About 8% of the population of our town worshiped with us on Sunday. Each Sunday, it was filled and had been filled for decades with the movers and shakers of our town, educators and lawyers and bankers and elected officials and successful farmers and business owners. All of the somebodies in town were in our church on Sunday, and I mean every one of them. So when I began my ministry there and began to consider how our church would continue to expand the kingdom in our community, I was a little bit at a loss. I kid you not. I would think, well, who else is there to reach? I mean, we're reaching everybody that we can reach. But then I actually began to live in the community and go to Walmart and go to the grocery store and drive around town, and I began to realize how massively under-resourced many in our town were. We had a lot of people living in poverty. Now, because I'm married to an educator, I realized that really one of the best ways to get to know a town, especially a small town, is through its schools. And we had four elementary schools in town. So, I, I went to the one of them that was literally across the tracks. And I began to meet with the principal. And as I did, I began to find out that there was a closet at the school for coats and shoes because frequently kids showed up in the winter without a coat, and any time of year, they would show up without shoes. I heard that the kids never had school supplies at the start of the year because their parents couldn't afford to buy those school supplies for them. And I heard that kids came to school hungry every Monday morning because the last full meal they had was at lunch on Friday. And then I heard this. I was told that these hungry kids had to wait until lunch on Monday to eat because our district didn't provide breakfast, even though our community clearly qualified for breakfast programs. And the reason, I kid you not, providing breakfast would mess up the bus schedules. There were three other elementary schools in town. For the most part, those kids were showing up happy and well-fed. But this school, about a mile from our church, a church that had at the time about a $1.5 million budget where all the movers and shakers in town attended, had hungry, coatless, shoeless kids whose needs were ignored by our community because they jacked up the bus schedule. They were invisible. That's what I mean when I say that poverty is dehumanizing. Now, 
our church adopted that school and volunteered and gave and started to provide breakfast on our own Monday morning for those kids in such a way that it shone a light on their needs in our community, and those kids became less visible, and uh, we got a, a breakfast program in our community. But that's not the point of today's message. Today, in this series of what it means to be human, a series called Imago Day in His Image, where we talk about the implication of the image of God in us and on our basic humanity, we're going to talk about the image of God and the impoverished. And in keeping with our pattern of exploring the image of God by looking at Jesus as the perfect example of the image of God, we'll ask three questions. And here's the first one. You know it already. What did Jesus teach? And the answer is simple. It's all so uncomfortable. Jesus taught that these invisible people in our communities are not just image bearers, which is what we would obviously expect him to say. No, Jesus taught that the impoverished hold a unique place in God's heart. And in that sense, he's only double underlining what literally almost every page of the Old Testament says. Seriously, read it sometime. Read the Psalms and see how close the, the needs of the marginalized are to the heart of God. They, they, they hold a unique place in God's heart. I'm going to let that sit for a moment. Not only are the impoverished not invisible to God, they hold a unique place in His heart. Kids who jack up bus schedules and people begging on the street corners are uniquely important to God. So uniquely important that in the list for ministry that Jesus used, it prioritized the poor first. We see this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is given the opportunity to preach in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. He's given a scroll containing the, the book of Isaiah, and Luke very deliberately tells us that Jesus looked for, found a particular passage. It, it means that he didn't just happen to open it up and it was there. It means he deliberately chose a specific passage from Isaiah. And here's what it read. We see it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we're told that after he read that, he rolls it up and he says this in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All of this is starting to happen through me is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, he's saying that I will be the one who who will bring about what I've just read. And it's not hard to see that this Isaiah passage really kind of serves as a template for Jesus' earthly ministry, a template created by God the Father who inspired Isaiah with these words. His life and work among the poor were the hallmark of his ministry and is a reflection of the unique place that the poor hold in God's heart. Now, was there a metaphorical 
sense to the word poor that Jesus read? Well, certainly. Jesus didn't exclude the wealthy and the powerful from hearing the good news, a fact that all of us in this room need to be grateful for. The Bible makes clear he had wealthy followers, even in his inner circle. But the priority of his ministry wasn't to the metaphorical poor. It was to the actually materially stricken, and it was a reflection of God's heart for them. And it's really not hard to see if you will make the words of Jesus more than just pretty words. And in Matthew chapter 6, for instance, Jesus is preaching something very famous called the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says in verse 25 of Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not more valuable than they? You know what we do? We tend to allegorize that, and we tend to think of that as being, again, merely pretty and poetic words. But, but Jesus communicated for a living. Can we basically accept that he might know a little bit about his audience? And what would he have been saying to an audience full of people who were desperately poor? Don't worry about what you'll eat, and don't worry about where you're going to rest and where you might find clothing. Jesus said these words not to be poetic, but because these people made up the bulk of his audience. And then he tells them, the reason you don't need to worry is because God sees you. God sees you. He will care for you. With this kind of concern from the God of the universe, it is little wonder that Jesus on multiple occasions called the poor blessed. Jesus taught that the impoverished occupy a unique place in the heart of God along with all of the other have-nots in this world. And Jesus actually tells us why. In Christ's appearance before John that opens the biblical book of Revelation. The author John records for us the words Christ had for a wealthy church in the wealthy town of Laodicea, showing again that Jesus is concerned that everyone follow him regardless of economic status. But listen to what Jesus says to these wealthy folks, Revelation 3, 17, for, I, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In that verse, being poor is a metaphor, but being rich is not. Jesus is saying that the relative wealth of his followers in Laodicea made them less dependent on him. That it was only when they had the desperation of the poor that they would truly begin to experience him. So perhaps the best way to get our mind around the unique place that the poor occupy in God's heart is to think of God desiring to be where he's wanted and where he's needed. Wealth can get in the way of that, which is why Jesus almost always characterizes wealth as an obstacle and even a curse. 
So Jesus taught that the impoverished hold a unique place in God's heart, and in doing so, he's not an innovator. He's simply carrying the message about God's heart for the poor forward from the Old Testament into the new. In short, he tells us that these people who the world overlooks, despises, and ignores, the invisible destitute masses are bearers of the image of God and hold a unique place in his heart. That's what Jesus taught. So what did he do? Well, he obviously did many things. But of all of the things he did, perhaps this is the most significant. Jesus became poor. Speaking speaking of Jesus, the, the biblical author Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, Paul is obviously contrasting Christ's heavenly existence as God with his earthly existence of living in poverty. And Jesus himself lets us know that this poverty wasn't a metaphor for anything. When he tells a, a would-be follower, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. From the very beginning, we are told that Jesus lived a life of poverty. He was born in a food trough for livestock. He was raised in a backwater town that one of his own followers mocked for its insignificance. When he died, he had to be buried in a borrowed tomb. There's no reason to think that Jesus was more impoverished than those around him, but he was at least as impoverished as those who were around him. Jesus could have become anything. He could have been born in a palace. Instead, he was born in a barn. Jesus became poor. In his earthly life, by his sovereign will, he chose to be fully identified with the impoverished and live their existence. It's further confirmation of the unique place that the impoverished have in God's heart, that he chose to live among them in his earthly existence. And it is his presence among them that leads us to our final question today. What did Jesus command? And what he commanded was very, very simple. Jesus taught serving the impoverished is to serve him. If you would please, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 25 in a very familiar passage of Scripture, verses 31 through 46. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, where Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. 
then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison? It did not minister to you. And then he will answer to them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we call this a parable. I'm calling it a parable. But it's really not a parable. Jesus is just telling us this is how the whole thing's going to go down. Let me tell you what you're looking at. And so he says that the standard that I will use for determining the sheep and the goats, who belongs to me and who doesn't, is not going to be measured by a person's efforts towards anything else other than his ministry to those among whom society frequently overlooks, the desperately poor. Who else would be hungry? Who else would be without clothing? That's a sobering word of warning. In this passage, Jesus isn't saying that the goats were not sheep because they didn't do these things. That would be to say salvation is based on good works and not grace. Here's how to understand this. Jesus is saying that you will prove yourself, and this is what he says, you will prove yourself to actually belong to me in your treatment of the desperately poor. And the goats prove themselves to be goats because they ignored them. They overlooked their needs. That is shocking. But perhaps the most shocking aspect of this entire parable, passage, is the intensity of the identification that Jesus has with the impoverished. Jesus says to treat or not treat the impoverished fairly was to treat or not treat him fairly. The identification with them is so strong that we must conclude that Jesus is telling us that he is in some way encountered in any interaction with impoverished and marginalized people. And this explains why our treatment of the poor is so telling. Those who really do follow Jesus will recognize him when they see him. Now, this is as good a place as any to reference the only verse that some of us have memorized about the poor. And it is Mark 14, 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And it is typically quoted as a kind of a rhetorical shoulder shrug. The poor's, what are you going to do? 
We quote Jesus as saying poverty is pervasive, so we need to be focused on other things. But what Jesus is doing here is actually telling us that being a follower of His will always put us in close proximity with those who are impoverished. He made this statement in the home of a healed leper, another one of society's outcasts. And so in context, He is simply observing that following Him is always going to place us in close proximity with marginalized people because that's where He's at work. Now in context, He's also saying that we need to be mindful of the ultimate priority of worship, but when we use this verse for the soul purpose of doing nothing, remember Matthew 25 and the scene at the end of time, and maybe just pump the brakes a little bit. So Jesus has shown us not only what we would expect, that the impoverished are image bearers, but that they have a unique place in God's heart. And because of this intense identification with them, they present us with a unique opportunity to actually serve Him. So what do we do? Well, I think what we have done is to do with the poor what churches in previous generations did with people of color. Previous generations would fund mission offerings at Christmas to reach people of color on the other side of the world, but would want to hold a special deacon's meeting if a black person actually showed up in church. How do I know that? It happened to me. It happened to me. And I think our generation is willing to give money to benefit the poor in, say, Brazil, but not advocate for the poor in our community. So, Let me suggest three things, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first one, but it is something I think we have to pay attention to. First, filter the political debate on programs and policies to help the poor through the matrix of what we've learned today. And here's what I mean. When hearing about, I don't know, a new tax law or a new initiative uh, program, ask yourself, Will this help the working poor, or will it affect them negatively, disproportionately? I mean, we live in a world where people can go years, people of great wealth can go years without paying taxes, and and in that same situation, people who are living below the poverty line have to pay 10%. I mean, that's, that's money off the plate for people. So, we need to think about those things. We're going to have differing opinions as to what programs and initiatives actually help the impoverished, but working toward political solutions on their behalf in a free country is not optional for a follower of Jesus if anything that we have seen today is remotely true. Nor is it an option to debate these solutions using pejorative terms that stereotype the impoverished as lazy or crooks or welfare moms. There are going to be disagreements over solutions, but we can never engage those debates, forgetting that the impoverished are image bearers. Second suggestion, figure out a way to develop relationships with impoverished people. In our culture, it's too easy to see someone begging and 
throw them a buck or two or usually just ignore them until the light turns green. I've been around long enough and ministered in a diverse enough variety of settings that I know that giving money is usually not a helpful thing anyway. And so I've really wrestled with what to do. And without intending to do so, Pastor Jonathan offered me a solution that actually one of our deacons in this room put into practice in his own life. I'm making a commitment before you to once a month swing by McDonald's by my house near 135th and State Line and offer someone begging there, and there is always someone begging there, a a meal, and to sit down and eat it with them and get to know them. That's that's me. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm committing before you to do. You do you. You figure out how to develop those relationships in a way that works for you. Which leads me to my third suggestion. Meet needs while sharing Jesus. When I take someone to eat, I will eat with them and ask God to protect my aging arteries from the fast food that I'm eating, and I will learn how I can pray for them, and then I'll share Jesus. Because as a follower of Jesus, while I can never minimize the importance of meeting a physical need, I can never forget the primacy of meeting spiritual needs by sharing Jesus. Jesus is out there. He's on the corners trying to get your attention until the light turns green. He is on the sidewalks at the plaza. He is on the receiving end of policies that disproportionately affect at times the poor. He's out there. And what we're called to do today is to see them. To see them because God sees them. And to give them a cup of cold water and Jesus' name. Join me in prayer.